I want to pray before we get started. Father, I thank you for the opportunity, Lord God. It's such a privilege to be able to bring your word, Father. And I pray, God, that every single person that's watching right now, that's listening to the sound of my voice, Father, I pray that every single one of them would position themselves in such a way that they block everything else out, Father, for these next few minutes that we have to share together to bring the word of God, the word of power, the word of love, the word of reconciliation, the word of restoration, Father God. I pray that every single person has ears to hear, eyes to see that which you desire to reveal to us today, Lord. Father, I present myself also. Teach me, as this word is being shared, the things that I need. Thank you for your grace that you've given me to be able to bring this word to your people, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in less than 30 days, we're going to be commemorating the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the death, and burial of res- uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is nothing more than a fulfillment of his promise that God made to Adam and Eve, which, which is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. After having been tricked into sin by the devil, God promises to send a Savior. God made the promise that someday to send a Savior in order to avenge the devil's trickery and rescue them from the consequences of their decision to sin. You know, every one of us has been given free will by our God, our Father, our Creator. And certainly we can choose to sin if we want to. And the, 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 the thing that we need to really take into consideration is that we may have the choice how to sin, but we don't have the luxury to choose what the consequences are going to be. And so I'm sure if Adam and Eve could rethink the whole situation they may have made very, very different choices than what they did. So let's pick up here in Genesis chapter 3. I hope you have your Bible or you, or you have your Bible app on your phone. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 8. And I'm reading to you from the New International Version. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he, God said to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, he's still addressing the serpent, who we know is symbolic of Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, the serpent shall, he, excuse me, the rescuer, the redeemer, the Messiah will bruise your head. And he said to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. And we know that took place at the cross. The damage at this point had been done. Adam and Eve were successfully separated from their creator. And it happened because of a lie. 
from the enemy of our souls, this lie came with the intention of separating mankind from its creator. And mankind has carried that curse of sin ever since. The consequences? Separation from God. Spiritual death, physical death, which can only come in if spiritual death comes in. Spiritual death had to come in first so that physical death could take place and manifest. Fear, disease, sickness, loss of provision. Even the plant and animal kingdoms were severely affected. From that point on, mankind waited for the promised rescuer to come and to save them from their sin. Then after about 4,000 years, a baby was born in Bethlehem. And the shepherds heard, today in the city of David, a Savior is born, Christ the Lord. This Easter, this resurrection season, we are focusing our attention on the word victory. And since it is the month of March, we're calling this series of teachings Victory March. It's our path to victory as we celebrate Resurrection Weekend at the end of this month. The word victory is almost always translated from the Greek word nikos. That's where we get the name Nike for the sneakers. It's to overcome an enemy through battle. On Resurrection Weekend, we'll be celebrating Jesus' victory over the enemy of mankind. Victory is always found at the end of a journey. I want you to take note of this. Jesus' victory, which he really won for us, his victory over hell, death and the grave, it started in the manger. Victory for us, for you and I, starts with the new birth. The beginning happened at that moment when the words came from our mouth, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross as payment for my sins. I believe God raised him from the dead, and I place all my faith and my trust as him, in him as my Lord and Savior. At this point, things changed for us. It was the initial beginning. It was that, that burst on the scene of us stepping into the path of righteousness, not our righteousness. When we speak of the word righteousness, I want you to understand, we're talking about stepping into a life in right standing with the Creator. In other words, there's no more separation between us and our Father in Heaven because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not counting our sins against us any longer. Even the consequences of sin were taken from us and placed on the back of Jesus. And he suffered and died on the cross. And God, our Father in heaven, received Jesus' suffering as payment for your sins and for my sins. And we're to be ever grateful for that. But understand that when we say we stepped onto the path of righteousness, uh, you know, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, all of that's true, but it's not, you did not gain your salvation. I did not gain my salvation because all of a sudden I became a good person. And we're going to talk more about that as we go along here. You stepped into a position of right standing with God because of Jesus, because all the punishment that you deserved and all the punishment that I deserved was taken and placed upon him. And by his wounds, by his suffering, by the torment that he suffered, his body being tortured, by that you and I have been healed. We're talking about spiritual healing. 
We're talking about emotional healing. We're talking about physical healing. Every part, everything, everything about us that was affected by sin, Jesus covered at the cross. And we're just be so grateful for that. And I pray that you're grateful for that. I pray that you never forget that, not for one moment, that we are not here assembled together today worshiping our God. And we did not come and call ourselves righteous in God's eyes because of our own conduct. It is because of all that he has done. Please don't ever forget that. Understand this. You know, this hit me about a week ago when I was preparing for this message. All of a sudden, this just, just rose up on the inside of, uh, inside of me in my spirit. Grasp this reality. Understand it and grasp this reality. Listen closely. His bloody sacrifice, naturally we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. His bloody sacrifice made him our Savior. But it's only our submission to his will that can make him our Lord. We have this habit of saying, well, you know, yeah, I was saved at such and such a time and such and such a place. And, you know, I received Christ as my Savior and Lord. Well, it's half true. It's half true. We receive him as our Savior because of what he did at the cross. But it's up to you to make him Lord. Our Savior is not a tyrant. He's not a dictator. He doesn't come and demand lordship over your life. He presents himself. The word of God clearly presents him as our Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But he will not force you to make him Lord. If you choose not to make him Lord, if you choose to continue to live your life along the path that you choose, you will have made him Savior, but you will not have made him Lord. And that's so important. We see this many times, I'm sure. What I'm about to say, you either, it either happened to you or you know someone that this happened to. A person will say a prayer, and we encourage that, to say what we call the prayer of salvation. And in the prayer of salvation, a person is making a declaration. Yes, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that God raised him from the dead. Thank you, Jesus, for making me a child of God. Thank you for forgiving my sins. And we think that's it. And in a sense, it is. But we're only going so far. When does it happen? What happens to the people that pray that prayer and then they just continue to live their life like as if nothing happened? Please don't let that happen to you. Understand that you and I have been given this honor and this great privilege and it's only because of the compassion and the pity that God has for us that he has drawn us to receive salvation. But dear God, it doesn't stop there. We need to spend the rest of our lives making him Lord over every area of our life. We need to submit our lives to him. We need to become subjects of the kingdom. And in order to become a subject of the kingdom, you let the king of that kingdom call the shots. You don't say a prayer, receive salvation. Thank you, Jesus. I don't have to burn in hell. But from this point on, I'm going to live my life the way I want. No, 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 no. Now, that is evidence that something has not changed. Something has not clicked. There needs to be a desire on the inside of us to say, Lord, you saved me. You suffered for me. I want to live the rest of my life for you. I'm going to put my dreams aside. I'm going to put my wants and my desires aside. I want to serve you. I make you my Lord from this point forward. And that progression will follow us until we take our last breath. That is life in the kingdom of God. And that's what we're going to be celebrating at the end of this month. Hebrews chapter 14. 
For by one offering has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This is one of the most important, important scriptures in the Bible. Actually, that's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. I want you to write that down. Hebrews 10, 14, one of the most important scriptures in the New Testament. So that we understand salvation and the process of making him Lord. That word perfected is the Greek word teleo. It's the same word that Jesus used at the cross when he said it is finished, it is paid in full, it is fulfilled. So again, let me read that, Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering he, Christ, has perfected, which pertains to us forever, those who are being sanctified. So in other words, it's a one-shot deal, one shot. As soon as we confess Jesus as Lord, as far as God's concerned, our spirits are perfected in his eyes. However, we still live on this planet. We still have a soul to deal with. We still have a carnal, fleshly body that wants to do what it wants to do. And so now what are we doing? We're entering into the process now of allowing him to become Lord over our lives. And that process is going to last until you take the last breath. Because we're always coming up with areas in our life that we realize, oh my God, I have not yet submitted this part of my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He needs to be Lord over this. I don't want the effects of my, living my life on my own. I don't want to be limited to what resources I have. There's only so much I can accomplish in my own willpower. Jesus, I come to you and I bring this area, that area, this area, I bring it to you, Lordship. I submit this area to you. You are Lord over this area. I am not. That's a progression that you and I need to be working for. So again, for, by one offering as perfected, that Greek word is teleo, same word that Jesus said at the cross, it is finished. And then that word sanctified, for he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That word sanctified is the Greek word hagiezo, which means holy. We're being made holy. Nobody becomes holy overnight. Your spirit was perfected, but you got a soul that's very unholy. You got a physical body that has cravings, desires that are unholy. When they're not reined in, they take us to places we shouldn't go, experience things we have no business experiencing. So it's a process. Where are you in that process? I can't answer that for you. You can't answer it for me. But I thank God for the Holy Ghost who, when we allow him to, will shine the light in those areas that are still outside of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I hope you're getting this here. I really hope you're understanding this point because this is so important. Now, this verse tells us that although our eternal destination has been settled, remember, we're perfected one time, that's it, forever. We are now in the process of being made hagiazo, holy, being made holy is a continuous process of, listen to this word now clearly and closely. Being made holy is a continuous process of repentance. Changing our mind in order to see, the thing, see things the way God sees them, the way God does. I don't know if you realize this or not. Maybe if you think back a little bit. Our life while on earth is made up of a series of growth spurts and stumbles. Great successes, horrible failures. Periods of holiness, followed by fits of unregenerate humanity. One, we might spend a couple of weeks we're just walking, knowing that, we're, knowing that we are intentional about not getting ourselves involved in things that are going to displease the Lord. 
not not using our not not allowing our thought life to determine what we're going to speak because our thought life sometimes will take us places that we wouldn't want anybody to know. So we're so we're mindful of what we're thinking. We're careful about what we're saying. We're certainly not allowing ourselves to get involved in things, and that might last for a little while. But then all of a sudden, something gets triggered in your soul. And all of a sudden, man, your flesh is like, yeah, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to go indulge in that thing. I want to go indulge in that thing. Or you get hurt or you get wounded or you get tired. Tired is a dangerous state to be in. And so when you're tired, you're like, you know, I deserve to do this. I deserve a break. I deserve a drink. I deserve a whatever. You put your, you fill in your blank. I deserve to indulge in this thing. I did indulge in that thing. And we'll make excuses and we'll justify our conduct. And so life turns out to be this up and down, up and down, up and down. Living holy for a little bit and then living out of God's will for, 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 for a time period. I pray that those time periods of living outside of God's will become shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter as we grow in the things of God. Understand this, please, that the path to growth and victory must include the cleansing power of repentance. Remember what repentance means. Repentance means that we're changing or allowing God to change the way we see things. We are willing and open to do that. Okay. Some people say, well, well, Pastor, I've heard that repentance is a change of heart. Honey, uh, you and I don't have the potential. We don't have the capability. We don't have the mechanism to change our own heart. If we could change our own heart, then Jesus went to the cross for nothing. But you and I have been given free choice. We have been given an intellect. We have been given the ability to de- decide things, to, to ingest information and to come up with a conclusion. In other words, I don't have the power to change my heart, but I certainly have the power to change my mind. As I'm willing to let the input of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God come into my intellect, and I could say yes to this, yes, Lord, you're right. My conduct in that area is not good. I agree with you. I have been involving myself in sin, and I want to stop that. Lord, I'm allowing you to come and change my mind. Help me to see that conduct the way you see it. Help me to hate the things you hate. Help me to love the things you love. We have a tendency in our human nature, even as born-again believers, born-again, spirit-filled, speaking in tongues, praying, we still have the ability to sin. And our lives have got to be made up of these growth spurts. And then we come to a place where we realize, no, I can't think that way anymore. I can't talk that way anymore. I can't conduct myself that way anymore. I am not going to allow my body to indulge itself in that conduct. And what happens? God then, by his Holy Spirit, comes and changes our heart where he allows us to now start seeing things differently the way he sees them. The word for repentance in the New Testament comes from the Greek word metanoia. It's one word, metanoia, made up of two words. The Greek rendering carries a connotation of sweeping change of mind and heart that leads to a change of behavior. Meta. Does that word sound familiar? Meta is the same word as the beginning part of that word metamorphosis, 
We always think about, you know, this ugly caterpillar that crawls into this cocoon and weaves a cocoon around itself and stays there for a length of time. And then at some point it breaks forth and what comes out of that cocoon doesn't look anything like what went into that cocoon. It's no more a slimy, ugly, hairy little caterpillar. It's this beautiful, colorful butterfly that's not limited to just crawling on the ground or crawling up trees. Now it can fly. It can, it's, its horizons have opened up. That is the picture that I want you to see about what repentance has the potential to do in our lives if we will just open ourselves to it. If we'll admit, oh, Father, I've gotten off here. Please help me. Please help me to change my mind about this conduct. Please help me to change my mind about the way I'm thinking about this part of life. You and I have the potential to come forth changed. It literally means to experience a change of mind, to see from another perspective. In our case, it means to see life through the eyes of God and not in our own thinking. We're so limited by our own thinking. We box ourselves in. Understand this. Repentance is a good thing. Repentance is not punishment. Repentance is a gift of God's grace. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I'm going to read to you from the Amplified Classic Version. The Lord does not delay and is not tardy or slow about his promises, according to some people's conception of closeness. But he is long-suffering, and thank God he is long-suffering, extraordinarily patient toward you, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should turn to what? Repentance. What is it saying? God's dealing with us. He's, he's willing to take a lot of time to deal with us. I can think of times in my own life where God might have spent five to ten years just changing the way I saw certain things about life, changing the way I saw certain things about myself, changing the way I saw things about ministry and about people and about teaching the Word. He's not in a hurry. It's a gift from Him. Literally, He, he knows us. He's patient with us. And He'll give us everything we need to take hold of so that we can change our perspective. It's a gift. It's a gift. And what is he talking about? Well, he has a great desire for us to do what? Number one, respond in repentance to our lost state. You responded when you were lost, and I'm assuming that the great, many, great majority of people that I'm speaking to are already born again. If you're not, you'll have the opportunity before we're done today. But what happened? How did you get born again? I can speak for myself. The first time anybody ever mentioned that term to me or the concept of having a relationship with Jesus, I was 17 years old. I was in high school. And two individuals, it was a guy who was like Mr. Jock on the basketball team and another young lady who she was kind of a hippie, you know, type person. You know, remember we're talking about the early 70s. Okay, and they both started talking about their youth groups and how they know Jesus and how they're born again. And I'm like, get away from me, you freaks. Just get away from me. What happened? I was not ready to change my perspective about having a relationship with Jesus or that I even needed to get born again or that I even wanted to go to heaven. And then God added to it, sent somebody else. And then God spoke to me through, through TV preachers and through people on the radio. And, and finally then I, I hired a person in my business who was an on-fire born-again Christian. And man, I put that poor woman through hell, tormented her, but... The seeds were getting in my soul. Finally, then, to probably one of the, after one of the worst years of my life, at 27 years old, man, God set me up big time. He was patient with me. 
He sent a group of people that made it clear to me I needed to get born again, and I understood it then. But what did I understand? I understood that I had to change my mind about life. I had to change my mind. I had to come to the conclusion, no, I'm not a good person. I need an outside force to change me. So that's what happened to you when you got born again. What happened? You heard the information. You heard about Jesus. You heard about the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You heard about this Redeemer. You heard that he died on the cross for our sins. And little by little by little, you changed your perspective and understood, I need a Savior. That was repentance. It's changing the way you see things. Number two. Once born again, God desires that we know him more and more intimately. In order to do that, I may have to repent. This is after I'm born again. What does it mean? I have to change my mind about some of the worldly things I'm still involved with. Or the sin that might be blocking my growth and my knowledge of him. We still sin after we're born again. That sin hinders our progress in being formed in the image and likeness of Jesus. It doesn't do any good for you to deny well, pastor, I'm a born-again Christian. I'm going to heaven. Yes, but it doesn't mean you don't sin. We sin. We still sin. That scripture is still true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even in a born-again state, we fall short of God's standard. And so we need to repent. Once the Holy Spirit brings to light, once we're reading in the Word and we understand, oh, wow, the Word tells me I'm supposed to love everybody, but I'm hating people. I'm supposed to forgive, but I'm, I don't want to forgive people. Then we start allowing the Word to work on us, and our mind, our intellect, our souls begin to change, and we start seeing things the way God sees them. That's repentance. The changing of the mind. Listen to what Andrew Womack had to say about this. Our culture has rejected all negative emotions. But God gave us the capacity for these negative emotions. And there is a proper use of them. Ecclesiastes 7.3 says, Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Hey, when we realize, hey, I'm wrong. I did wrong here. Yeah, it could bring sorrow. It can hurt sometimes to hear that. But that hurt then turns around and causes us to press in. I want to change that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to feel sorrowful anymore. I don't want to feel hurt anymore. So he goes on to say, people should feel bad about sin. They should. We should. There should be sorrow over our failures. Talking about moral failures, character failures. However, this sorrow should lead to repentance. And most times, sorrow leads to self-condemnation, but we never get changed. We don't change. We get defensive. We don't want to hear somebody come and tell us, hey, listen, that conduct that you're, you, you know, you're, the way you're conducting yourself lately, you know, I know you're better than this. I know you, you know, what are you doing? You're, look at how you're treating your spouse. Look at how you're treating your, your family. Look at how you're treating your, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Look, you're not a good employee. You're not this. You're that. We don't like to hear that stuff. But honestly, we really love each other. We're going to be there for each other. But you may have to change your mind. You may have to change your opinion about yourself. You may have to submit yourself to God and let him come in and say, yeah, I love you. Yes, you're coming to heaven with me. Yes, but I'm not pleased with that conduct. I'm not pleased with those thoughts. I'm not pleased by what you're exposing yourself to, letting your eyes see things. They're going to promote stuff in your life that's not good. We're, 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 most of the times we live our lives so concerned about offending someone over their sin. But what about how it offends God? 
or how it offends me. What about offending each other? There are times that are ordained of God that we say, hey, look, that's not okay. You know, I remember many years ago when my kids were small. They're all now, my youngest is, out of the four of them, my youngest, our youngest is 36 or 37 years old. So I'm talking like 30 years ago. We were sitting in a restaurant in Tom's River, pizza, pizza restaurant. And I'm there, you know, and it was a privilege for us that many years ago to be able to afford to even go to a restaurant, let alone have it spoiled by somebody else. So my wife and I are sitting there, our four little boys around the table, and they're having fun. And next to us is a table full of guys, and they're dropping the F-bomb in every other sentence. And it grieved my heart. It grieved my heart. My boys are listening to this. So when I couldn't, I, that was it. After about the second or third time, I got up and walked over to the table. I said, hey, guys, listen. I really would appreciate it. I got my family over here. I got four boys here that are listening to your language. I'm not trying to stop you from having a good time, but dear God, have a little bit of common sense and have a little bit of a decency for my children that are listening to this language. And you know what? I thought I was going to end up with a fight, having to fight four guys. You know what? They said, we're, we're really sorry. We're so sorry. And, and they stopped. And they stopped. What are we, why, when are we going to start standing up? That, I know that conduct didn't please God, but it also offended us. We're always worried about offending somebody else. But what about the things that the world does that offends us, offends the Jesus in us, the Holy Ghost that's in us? Now, I'm not saying go around starting fights every place, but start thinking about that. How about letting the light shine in your heart? Lord, what am I doing to offend others? Lord, what am I doing to offend you? We're so fixated on, well, God loves me just how I am. God loves me. You better thank God God loves us just as, as we are. Or we'd all be in hell already. But that doesn't mean that there's not things that displease him. But because he loves us, because he has compassion for us, he doesn't overlook the things. He starts dealing with us. But if you have set yourself where you're not going to let even God deal with you to change, man, I don't know what you're going to say when you stand in front of Jesus one day. Now, you, may be think, you might think this is harsh, but man, it's coming from a heart of love and coming from a heart of compassion. I want all of us, including myself, to when we stand before Jesus, he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not, hey, got to let you in. You said the prayer. Come on in. Let's go to Luke chapter 7. I want you to see something here that really jumped out at me. I'm going to read to you from, starting in verse 27, from the Amplified Bible Classic Edition. Jesus speaking. This is the one whom it is written, behold, he's talking about John the Baptist now. He's talking about John the Baptist. This is the one who has written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He shall make ready your way before you. Verse 28. Follow along, please. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. But he that is inferior to the other citizens of the kingdom of God is greater in incomparable privilege than he. Verse 29. Now, this is really important. Listen to this. Jesus just got done saying, describing John the Baptist, who he is, what he's about, what his ministry is about. Verse 29. And all the people who heard him, even the tax collectors. Now understand that tax collectors were considered the scum of society. They were hated by everybody because they extorted people for money. They didn't just collect the taxes. They collected the taxes, plus they put their own personal commission on top of that. 
So they were hated in society. But it says here in verse 29, and all the people who heard him, even the tax collectors, acknowledged the justice of God, calling them to repentance and in pronouncing future wrath upon the impenitent. That means people who refuse to repent. Being baptized with the baptism of John. I just said a lot to say this. What we're told here in verse 29 is that the scum of the earth, all the sinners, all the lowlifes, all the degenerates, they said, God, you are right. We need to repent. We need to change. Why did they come to that conclusion? Because they were baptized with the baptism of John. I'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 30. But the Pharisees, the religious people, and the lawyers of the Mosaic law, the ones who were experts in the Old Testament, annulled and rejected and brought to nothing God's purpose concerning themselves. Watch this. By refusing and not being baptized by him, John. Now that baptism of John is a key phrase. Because the baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism of repentance. In other words, preparation. Get your hearts ready. The Messiah is coming. The rescuer is coming. So what the above scripture is telling us is that sinners, the degenerates and the tax collectors, considered the lowest, were willing to change their minds about their sinful nature and their sinful lifestyles. But the religious people would not because they refused to consider that they needed a savior. They would not repent. And until you and I repent, until you and I change our minds about the way life is, change our minds about our sinful nature, until we're willing to do that, we cannot experience being born again. Pastor, what are you saying? I got to confess all my sins? No, what I'm saying is, as it pertains to salvation, you and I have to change our mind and say, no, I can't do this on my own. There is no way for me to attain heaven. I'm going to spend eternity in hell if I do not put my pride aside and recognize I need a savior. That requires a change of mind. John the Baptist's calling was announced in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What's say? It's, a, it's a, a baptism of preparation. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. The sinners did. The religious people refused. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now watch this now. Jesus wanted all the people that he came in contact with to experience the glory of God. When you got saved, when you got born again, when you allowed your mind to change and recognize I need a savior, you experienced the glory of God coming upon your life. But those who refuse... Those who say, I don't need a Savior. I don't need this Jesus. I don't need God. I'm good on my own. I'm a good person. I'm generous. I treat people nice. I buy groceries for people. I go out of my way for people. I give people a shirt off my back. You'll be in hell without a shirt. None of that matters. You've got to change your mind. You've got to stop thinking that you're okay on your own. You need a Savior. And this scripture is telling us here that the religious people refused to allow their minds to change. We have Abraham, we have Moses, we have the law, we have the temple, we have the sacrificial system. None of it was worth anything because they wouldn't let God change their mind and change their hearts. They sacrificed animals every year but never changed. 
John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance according to Mark chapter 1, verse 4. Sinners flocked to John. You know who didn't flock to John? The religious people who thought they were okay. The sinners were willing to change their minds, willing to make a clear way for the good news of salvation to penetrate their hearts. The religious people hardened their hearts and closed their minds to a salvation that didn't put their good deeds and religious rituals at the center. There's two functions of repentance. I want you to listen to this closely. Because we're going to continue on this in the weeks to come. Number one function of repentance is repentance unto salvation. I'm changing my mind so that I can receive salvation. You and I had to see salvation as the only, only attainable through Jesus' death. This is not so much about eliminating our sin in our lives at that point in time before we can be saved, but coming to the conclusion we are sinners and we need a Savior. For, for somebody to say, well, a person, before they're going to get born, they're going to have to repent of all their sins. You don't even know what a sin is at that point. You didn't know what was right and what was wrong. Everything you did, no matter what it was, whether it was good or right, it was still wrong. Why? Because you're a sinner. Repentance unto salvation is different from repentance unto sanctification. See, I had to change my mind in order to become born again, in order to come into the kingdom of God and the family of God. In order for me to receive salvation, I had to let the word of God change my mind, the way I'm thinking. Well, I'm a Catholic. I go to church every Sunday. I light candles. I, pl- I pray the rosary. I put my $2 in the offering. That's how we used to think. We were depending on that conduct for our salvation. And you and I had to change our minds and realize, no matter how many candles I light, no matter how many beads I spend, no matter how much time, no matter how many times I kneel at a pew, it's not going to get me salvation. Salvation comes by me realizing I am a sinner. I could be born and die in church. I'll still be a sinner until I come to the place where I'm allowing the word of God and the Holy Spirit to change my thinking. I repented. I metanoia. I allowed my mind to be changed and morphed into something else, a new creation in Christ. Number two, repentance unto sanctification. In order for us to grow in our relationship with God, we must allow the Holy Spirit to deal with us about the behaviors and mindsets and, mindsets and conduct that still reflect our unsaved nature. The New Testament calls it, refers to it as putting off and putting on. I got to put off. I have to change my mind about this conduct, so I'm going to put it off. But now I realize this is the conduct that I need. This is what's going to reflect my Savior. This is what's going to glorify my God. This is what's going to draw people unto Christ. And that's what I need to put on. I hope you're getting this. Because I know somebody's saying, Pastor, I thought this was a message of victory. Yeah, your victory, listen closely, your victory is on the other side of your repentance. We're going to see this even more clearly as we continue in this march to victory, continuing next week. I pray that something that I've been able to share with you today. I'm, I'm thankful for your attention. I, I'm just, I'm so hopeful that something that I shared today had, has shaken you and broke you out of maybe a mold that's been there for way too long. That you would see life differently 
Number one, if you're not yet in relationship with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would allow your mind to be flooded with the thoughts of God, of his word, of the fact that Jesus loved you so much, loves you so much, that he was willing to get on that cross and suffer a horrible death, knowing it's the only way that you were going to be able to have the opportunity to receive salvation. And it's an opportunity. It's not guaranteed. You must respond. For those of us that are already born again, I pray that something that I've shared, and I pray that as I continue, as we continue in this teaching over the next couple of weeks, that something in you is going to shake, it's going to break. It's going to like when you open up that tight jar, it just snaps. And you'll allow the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit to come in and reveal to you, hey, these thoughts that you're thinking is not good. This speech that you, this pattern of speech and this way you're talking is not reflecting the Savior. The way you're conducting yourself, the, the people you're hanging out with, the things that you're doing, the places you're going. I pray that you'll allow him to shine that light there. I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you'll allow him to change your mind, that you'll give him permission to change your mind so that he can change your heart. God bless you. I pray that this message has been a blessing to you.